The very concept of human rights dawned upon the world in the convulsion of the English civil wars in the 17th century, and at its birth it was known as the doctrine of natural rights. For the first time in world history, writers began to identify individuals as possessing individual rights. That is to say, individuals, discrete individuals, atomistic individuals were recognized for the very first time in the history of political theory as enjoying individual rights because for the first time all of humanity was not lumped together like some lump of clay. That had revolutionary implications because it meant then that individuals could assert rights against their government, rights which were either derived from the hand of God or inherited in nature. And it was the foundation for America's revolution against England. It provided the foundation for the French and their own revolution in 1789. As the decades rolled by, Individual writers, sometimes organizations, would attempt to promote and increase the concept of human rights, but of course it always remained just a literary theory because it had never been enshrined in any legal code. But with the horror of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany and the end of World War II, suddenly the very concept of human rights took flight. It found expression most famously in the International Declaration of Rights in 1948, spearheaded by Eleanor Roosevelt, among others. And since that day, the human rights effort worldwide has grown exponentially, and it represents at bottom to accord to all human beings fundamental human rights, which is to say every living person is entitled to human rights and unfortunately, even though it is the case that some governments in foreign countries, some commissions here in these United States are unwilling to accord to human beings their human rights on the grounds that somehow they're less than human, the cause persists in spite of that obstruction. The wonderful documentary produced by our guest today, Marcia Franklin, has won numerous awards. It has been named most recently uh, by the American Bar Association and honored uh, with the Silver Gavel Award. It's won a Peabody Award. It's won the Edwin R. Murrow Award. It's won two Idaho Press Club Awards and an assortment that would take me another half hour to describe. That's the brilliance, that's the influence of this wonderful documentary, The Color of Conscience. Marsha Franklin, of course, is no stranger to those of, us, those of us who watch public television here in Idaho because she's a longtime producer and host of, of a number of programs at Idaho Public Television. She, of course, is a familiar face and a voice to those of us in Idaho Falls because she began, began her career at KFI, KIFI Channel 8 TV right here in Idaho Falls. We lost her to San Francisco when she went to become a producer for KQED. And since then, upon her return to Idaho, she has been the producer and co-host of the award-winning program Dialogue, which is, of course, Idaho Public Television's statewide call-in program that all of us enjoy very much. She's also a co-producer of Idaho Outdoors and the producer of many, many programs that have been aired 
on public television at the national level. In her spare time, and indeed it's hard to identify any spare time when you're talking about Martha Franklin, but she is an avid reader and biker and traveler. And it's a great pleasure to be able to invite to our podium today a fellow city clubber, because Marsha was a founding member of the City Club of Boise and the immediate past president. Let's welcome old friend Marsha Franklin. Thank you for that excellent introduction with the humanities thrown in. I think we're going to need to do another documentary just with you, don't you think? One small correction, the, I, the, this uh, program didn't win a Peabody Award, although that would have been great. But uh, another program that I produced did on mental illness, uh, and I, I just mentioned that because Region 7, which is here in Idaho Falls, was heavily featured in that documentary, and the amazing people from Region 7 who work on the ACT team supporting people with mental illness. Um, I, I'm delighted to be here representing Idaho Public Television, but I'm just as delighted to be here, as Professor Adler said, as a representative of founding board member of the City Club of Boise. I am just thrilled that there is a City Club of Idaho Falls. Something like this did not exist when I lived here in 1989 and 1990. Would have been great. And I can just tell you from my experience now, being 17 years on the board of the City Club of Boise, that your club will continue to grow and that it will continue to have an important place in the civic fabric of this community. And so kudos, kudos to everyone who put this club together and continues to work so hard on it. I'm delighted to be here. And you know, I was doing some research on other city clubs around the country and the grandmother of them all is the City Club of Cleveland. You might hear um, its presentations on the radio sometimes. But I found that the majority of the city clubs in our country that are engaged in civic dialogue, because there are some other city clubs that you can look up that are basically private eating clubs, um, the majority of the civic city clubs in this country are in the West, and even more interestingly, in this Pacific Northwest region. So Boise, Idaho Falls, Seattle, Portland, Tacoma, Bellingham, Bend, Springfield, Oregon. Uh, now we can maybe write off the Oregonians as just needing to talk a lot because it rains so much over there. But <laughs> in all seriousness, I think that's something for us to ponder. You know, why have city clubs taken off so well in this region? What does it say about us as living in this region wanting to, searching for com commonality, searching for talking about issues in a civic, civilized way. I think it says a lot. I'd also like to welcome some of the people in the audience. As was mentioned, I was a TV reporter here um, 23 years ago. Hopefully my hair, makeup, and everything look a, little, a lot better. I was kind of stumbling around there. Um, but I was welcomed into this community uh, by many people, but several people in this audience in particular. And I'd like to really thank John and Michelle Hansen, who could not have been more welcoming and warm to me when I was a young reporter here. And Tim Hopkins, who's also here. 
their uh, generosity of spirit to me is reflected again in their being founders of the City Club here. I think it says a lot. And also, as I said, I'm super nervous because two colleagues are here. Carol Honus, who was at Channel 8 when I was there, also welcomed me and helped me, mentored me as I was trying to find my way in television. Thanks so much for being here, Carol. And Chris Milgate, who, if you have not seen her work on Idaho Public Television, do stream it now. Um, she's winning all sorts of awards. She uh, has her own business that uh, does excellent work, videography and producing, and then she also produces pieces for Outdoor Idaho that are stupendous. So I'm um, happy to have both of you here. People sometimes ask me why I've stayed in Idaho for as long as I have. I'm from back east. I'm from Washington, D.C. I did work in San Francisco. I did graduate work in Chicago, a lot of big cities. In fact, I had a guest on Dialogue the other uh, last week who said to me, he has a Boston accent, he said, Marsha, from, you're from D.C. and you lived in Boston and San Francisco. Don't you get bored here? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, like any place, uh, sometimes. But no, I stay because I feel, I love the landscape. I, I love having, um, being involved in civic activities. And I love the people. And a lot of why I wanted to produce this documentary is that certainly before I came here and when I arrived, a lot of people would say to me, how can you live in Idaho, that place of hate, that place where the Aryan nations lives? And as we know, and as I hope I showed in the documentary, while we have that element, and every state does, we have incredible people who are working on that issue, not just then, but now. Another reason I stay is my job. Since 1990, I've worked at public television. And as a producer for public television, I'm able to get more in-depth with issues which is really a luxury these days, as Carol can tell you, you know, to, to be able to sit down with somebody for half an hour or make a documentary like this. And I believe you can shed some more light on a subject than just heat. You also, I can, work without any pressure to change my story, to avoid offending a particular ent entity, and believe me, this documentary deals with some sensitive subjects. I was never once told that I needed to back off or change in any way. And that's because of our general manager, Peter Morrill, who many of you have met, who is known throughout the public television system as a leader, has sat on the PBS board, in fact. And those of you today can pick up the New York Times and read a story in which Peter is quoted about recent uh, controversies, let's just say, over the funding of public television, epitomized by the figure of Big Bird. So speaking of light, um, the title graphic, of the title of this uh, documentary is The Color of Conscience, and you can see a candle next to it. Coming up with the title for this program was very difficult for me because there's so many issues involved in the program. But it, the title literally came to me in the middle of the night many years ago. Some people don't like it because 
The program is not just about race, i.e. color. And I tried out other titles, but I kept coming back to this one. And I guess I liked the concept of thinking about what color would your conscience be if it had a color inside of you. And in the end, it seemed to me that conscience often equals light, which of course can look like many colors, depending on how it's refracted. And representing that light is the candle. And in fact, as I produced this piece and filmed it, it seemed that there were candles in many scenes. And so that kind of sealed the deal for me. So it's called The Color of Conscience. Another critical aspect of any documentary is that it has to be funded. <laughs> and, and on this uh, screen here and for the radio audience, you can see our funders who include, or which include the INL, the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, the Idaho Women's Charitable Foundation, and the Idaho Public Television Endowment. Very, very critical. The first video for this program was shot in the spring of 2001. Think about that, our lives changed in September 2001. So uh, that's quite some time ago and the video premiered in May 2011. So that's 10 years. And part of that delay was due to my schedule. I was working on a documentary about the astronaut Barbara Morgan and all of a sudden NASA said, okay, she's going up in space. So I had to put this aside. But part of it was the long amount of time it takes to secure funding for a program like this, which again deals with some sensitive subjects. The program re-aired in September of 2011 along with the latest installment then of the national PBS program Not In Our Town, which is a long-running series on human rights issues that I recommend you watch online if you're interested in these subjects. As I mentioned, it was 10 years between the first shots that were taken for this program and, and when it aired. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But first, I'm just curious, how many of you have seen the full program, The Color of Conscience? Okay, so for the radio audience, about 15 people and an audience of maybe 80, something like that. Um, I thought it might be instructive to show you what we call the tease of the program. A tease is designed to draw you in and keep you watching but also to give you an overview of what you'll be seeing. And it's a bit of an art, as Chris and Carol can tell you. Uh, you don't want a tease to run too long. You don't want to ruin too many surprises in the program, but you do want to give folks a good sense of, of some of the best comments in the piece. And for this program, the challenge was always picking what issues I'd include in addition to the story about the Aryan nations. So in this tease, you'll be able to see some of those issues. Free again. They tarnished Idaho's image for nearly 30 years. And left a stain that's hard to remove. But despite the dangers, about quarter to 12 last night, I was bombing up outside my back door. A small group of human rights activists spoke up. We would never remain silent. We never have. You've got to live human rights. You can't just say human rights. And they won. And you saw the beginning and the middle and the absolute end of an, an American Nazi movement. But what's still below the surface? If we think that just because we knocked out the top of the iceberg and that bias is no longer in Idaho, 
that we're, we're dead wrong. He pointed his finger at me and he said, look at the terrorists. I was bullied so much that I even had to try to take my own life. Still, there is light. I just want to say how heartening it is for me to see this. It doesn't take a special kind of heroic effort to combat bigotry. You don't have to be a superstar, you just have to speak out. To be given the honor of leading a purposeful life is a precious thing. Great, so that was the tease. Hopefully it would have drawn you in and you wanted to watch the rest of the program. So as I mentioned, the kernel of this documentary was to show the history of the Aryan nations in Idaho and how it was pushed out. And that's because, you know, many people still aren't really aware of what the group actually believed. And that as a result of a civil lawsuit against the Aryans, the group went bankrupt. Many people still think the Aryan nations is still here. And even more, you know, people don't realize that an Idaho Falls native, Greg Carr, purchased the compound from the plaintiffs who won the lawsuit and then burnt it down. This is a story that is just not known even in Idaho, but certainly outside of Idaho, it's not known. So I, I wanted to tell that story. I also felt it was very important to have a member of the Aryan Nations or a hate group, a former member, in the documentary. I believe we need to know what draws people into these groups and potentially what encourages them to leave. And so my goal was actually to try and find a child who had grown up on the compound and what had happened to them since then, but I wasn't able to do that. I was able to find a man named T.J. Leiden, though. He was a former neo-Nazi skinhead and a recruiter for a group called the Hammerskins, which actually had a concert in the Boise area recently. He had been to the compound many times and uh, is an author of a book called Skinhead Confessions, which I recommend that you read. He was living in St. George, Utah at the time that I was filming this documentary, so I went down to interview him. The program actually starts with him, but for time I've, I've cut down the segment a bit. But here I want to show you a clip that delves into the history of the Aryan Nations and a bit about T.J. Lydon. In many ways, the Church of Jesus Christ Christian seemed like any other, but it soon became clear that this was no normal house of worship. I tell you this, kindred, that the alien is now flooding in. They are displacing the people of Los Angeles, San Diego. They are displacing the people out of Chicago and out of New York. In Christian identity theology, Jews are children of the devil. They will eventually join with non-whites who are considered subhuman and wage a war against white Aryans. To prepare for the battle and strengthen Aryan numbers, Butler promoted separatism, including a territorial imperative. Five Northwest states, including Idaho, would be for whites only. For as the Indian comes in, there is nothing more that the white Aryan can do but obey the commandment of Yahweh his God and separate himself. I will tell you this, we'll fight for what we've got and for what we want to keep. And what do you mean fight? Fight. To the finish. At any means. What would happen if one of your younger sisters married a Jew or married a black? According to scripture, they should be put to death. You're not supposed to mongrelize your seed. That wouldn't bother you if they were put to death? 
it wouldn't bother me because it would be the just desserts. Since church services happen just once a week, Butler formed a political and membership arm, the Aryan Nations. Thousands of racist pamphlets and tapes made their way across the world, pumping money into Butler's coffers and reaching people like Lydon, a leader of a racist skinhead gang in California. I had 29 racist tattoos on my body. I believed that because I was white, I deserved more in this country. For Lydon and his then-wife, a vacation was going to the Idaho compound on Hitler's birthday. There, they'd revel in the mosh pits of racist punk bands and drink in the words of Butler. This is the war that existed then. It was the war that existed in the beginning. It is the war that exists this day. Even people that didn't believe in Christian identity would, would walk away going, wow, that was incredible listening to him speak. He sort of became a, um, uh, an ecumenical racist, if you will. He, he attracted anybody that, that hated. He was the man to go to. Let the circles move, as does life. Forward, march. The culmination of the Aryan events was a cross-burning. Free again, in the land that we choose, free forever, with the will of God. Participants left the compound ready to do business. You're like, let me find somebody. Let me find a guy holding another guy's hand. Let me find, you know, an interracial couple, and I'll teach them what this world's supposed to be like. So that's T.J. Lydon, and he's gone on to speak around the world since I uh, did that interview, including at a summit of former extremists put on in London, England by Google. He is a convert to Mormonism, by the way, um, and represents a very interesting branch of that faith. I'm still in touch with him. Now, one other other thing, the footage you see in that clip and in the rest of the program, gathering it was one of the most difficult things that I had to do to find it, to transfer it from its original state uh, format. Some of it was in our archives, but I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the public TV station in Spokane and to the commercial TV stations in Spokane who literally opened their doors to me and in one instance a sub-basement door where I went down into like a, I mean, I don't think anybody had been down there for quite a while um, and let me look through these dusty tapes and let me use them uh, without charging me, you know, doing it in the public interest, which again is the way television used to work, right? Um, We used to share things. And so uh, you can't make a documentary like this that deals with history without working with other TV stations to share footage. And just parenthetically, a lot of this footage was on three-quarter inch tape, which Carol and I know quite well. It degrades, it was often erased. I would think that I found a, a, a tape from 1982 or whatever and there, it had been erased and some you know, foot race from Spokane was on top of it. Um, it is an unstable format. There are very few machines left to transfer it, and it can snap when you do it. And I mention this for those of you who are interested in history because there's a period of American history from about 1979 to 1994 or so, when three-quarter inch was in use, that if it's not archived, it's going to go away because this tape format was so unstable. And we're working at our station to try and transfer a lot of tape over. So I mentioned that the first shot of the documentary was in 2001. That's when I learned that a group of human rights leaders who had worked so tirelessly to combat the message of the Aryan nations and who had ultimately figured out how to bankrupt them 
that group, those people, were going to the compound for the first time. I felt that this was a moment that needed to be documented. Although I did not know what I was going to use the footage for. I thought maybe I'd roll it into that, the weekly show that I host, Dialogue. But it, I knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So I asked if I could go along with the group and was given permission. So let's take a look at this clip and I'll talk a little bit more about it. Six months after the verdict, some of the human rights advocates who had worked so hard to counter the Aryan nations would walk on the compound for the first time. It was almost too much for Idaho Purse. The moment I walked across that gate, I was very weak. I felt the evilness under my feet and I just didn't know what to do. You can do this. Gissel had already been in the buildings to remove material for preservation, but there were still stacks and stacks of the literature left, along with other depictions of hate. The book that made the Jews so mad they had to invent the movie Holocaust. God. The voices are still here to me. I have to convince myself that I'm walking around that I'm not going to run into somebody. For the alienist. They sat here and heard Butler rail against me. This is the war. He publicly from this pulpit preached against the task force and he preached against me by name as the head of the task force. And that triggered the people sitting out there in the pews, justified their coming after me with that pipe on that night. And that's the importance of that, of that verdict, is that that kind of violence is not going to be triggered from this pulpit anymore. Anymore. Oh, Will, this is going to be tricky when you come up here. Uh, I can do this. Can you do this? Yeah, this will work. Wasmuth had just been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS, a fatal illness. His legs were already weakening, but not his resolve. As long as I got something, I can do a little study. He wanted to climb the guard tower, the same tower where Butler's men had been right before they assaulted the Keenans. And I think that was his victory when he stood there and he could feel like mission accomplished. Less than a year later, ALS had taken its toll on Wasmuth's body. But the importance of that day at the compound was not lost. Just to be on that space and to be able to acknowledge the progress that had been made. But he was worried that people would relax their guard. I think there's a possibility of people saying, all right, we got that problem taken care of, move on. And they're forgetting the fact that that's only the tip of the iceberg, that the underlying prejudices in people on the street still need to be addressed, and those are much tougher. So the underlying prejudices of people on the street still need to be addressed. Um, you saw Idaho Purse in there. Idaho, as many of you know, is from Pocatello. Her husband, John, just passed away. And when this program was uh, given the Civil, Civil Gavel Award excuse me, from the American Bar Association, I accepted it in honor of John Purse, who had wanted to become an attorney, but because of racism as an African-American, was not able to achieve that dream. 
Uh, Idaho is an amazing person. So anyway, once I saw the footage of that group walking on the compound and also in the emotion involved from Idaho and others, and then realized the metaphorical effect of Bill Wasmuth literally taking back the pulpit from Richard Butler and then climbing that tower where Butler's guards had shot at the Keenans, and that's what provoked the civil lawsuit that ultimately bankrupted the group. I knew that this could not just be a segment in a weekly show, that it was the seed of a larger documentary, not only about how a small group could bring down the Aryan nations, but also, as Bill says at the end of the segment so eloquently there, uh, about realizing that the job is not done. So I wrote up a proposal, uh, uh, wrote up a proposal, and then started, we started the long process of looking for funding. And then I had the unenviable task of narrowing down what those, quote, other issues would be, right? Because it's only an hour documentary and half of it was taken up with the Aryan Nation story. I talked to a lot of human rights leaders and several themes kept coming up over and over again. Those included Marilyn Schuler, who you just saw in that piece, and governor, former Governor Phil Batt, who was very active in human rights issues. And both of them kept raising the same issues of immigration, undocumented workers, uh, or undocumented uh, people living here, and gay rights. So I decided to include those along with the fact that there are still hate crimes occurring in our state. There were so many other wonderful issues that I had wanted to get to. I have a beautiful interview, beautiful and also sad, with the chairman of the Coeur d'Alene tribe about how to this day he's still harassed. He's had uh, people try and push him off the road. He's been accused of stealing things from the store. Um, you know, just the, the continued racism that is perpetuated against uh, tribal members. There's issues with disabled people. There's issues with discrimination against the LDS faith, you know, Chinese workers here, Japanese people who are interned. I mean, where do you, where do you stop? You, you can't, it, it's very difficult. I had to leave a lot of things on the floor, including, by the way, an interview that I did with Richard Butler. So, and with the rabbi, the only rabbi in the state. These were incredibly painful decisions, but again, as my colleagues can tell you, they, they're decisions that unfortunately, because of time, have to be made. It's not, a, it's not a book, it's not a PhD thesis where you can keep going and you know, include footnotes and everything. Um, I will tell you later about the website where a lot of ancillary material lives for this documentary, and that is a wonderful thing that has happened for producers in my career. The web allows you to put some of that material on that you're not able to include in the show. So in picking a piece today to show you about one of the other issues I included, I really wanted, of course, to show a piece about breaking boundaries. And there are representatives here from breaking boundaries. Thank you very much for, for being here. Um, the, the whole section on um, gay rights has to do with whether the words sexual orientation and gender identity should be included in Idaho's human rights statute. But within that section, I did do a piece on Theron McGriff, who many of you know, and Breaking Boundaries, the group that he started. Let's take a look at that. In Idaho Falls, one gay man isn't waiting for the legislature. Theron McGriff worked with his employer to amend their policies so that no one can be fired for being gay. The company is also extending benefits to same-sex partners. Because of the friendly atmosphere, McGriff can do what most gay people can't, have pictures of his partner up in his office. He hasn't always been that comfortable, though. It's amazing, the outpouring. McGriff looks through a box of newspaper clippings and letters from 2002 
about a legal case against him that made national news. A judge had ruled that McGriff, who'd gotten divorced, couldn't have custody of his children because he was gay. They couldn't even visit if his partner was there. McGriff appealed, and the Idaho Supreme Court told the judge to reopen the case, this time without looking at McGriff's sexual orientation. The importance of our case is it said you cannot use someone's sexual orientation against them uh, in a custody battle. But the fight nearly bankrupted him. To pay his legal fees, McGriff's friends held potlucks to raise money. So much money came in, they decided to use the rest to start a group called Breaking Boundaries. Every year, the organization has a black tie event that raises more than $30,000 for HIV-AIDS patients, diversity programs, and underprivileged youth. And for nearly a decade, the program has brought parts of the AIDS quilt to Idaho Falls. Hundreds of students come to see the panels. We're educating people not only about HIV or AIDS, we're educating people about diversity, educating people about accepting others, what it means to be a community, and the baby was one when he died. Kristen Ozaki helps with the event. I think diversity is really important because living in Idaho Falls, kids don't really see that and they need to learn to like work with people of different races, different religions, different sexual orientation, and they just need to learn that all the world isn't one thing. So there you go, local Idaho Falls people working on important issues. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think in 1989, when I lived here, that a group like Breaking Boundaries would have been able to gain enough traction to exist here. I, I could be wrong about that, but this was an interesting thing for me to see, to come back and film that 23 or 22 years after I'd lived here, to see all these school buses coming in and children coming out and looking at portions of the AIDS quilt. Very, very interesting. and. What I heard over and over again from everyone I interviewed is that education is the key to these issues, to working on these issues. Um, starting young, talking openly about differences and commonalities. Uh, the next clip is the conclusion of the program. Now it's coming out of a segment on John Day, Oregon, which is a small town in eastern Oregon that had been paid a visit by a neo-Nazi who said he was now the head of the Aryan Nations and he wanted to build a compound in John Day. The local newspaper editor there became concerned, called a town hall meeting. She got on the internet and found Norm Gissel's name. Norm was in that earlier segment. He was a, a local Coeur d'Alene attorney who worked tirelessly on human rights issues. And she called him to see if he would come to John Day, Oregon and address the community about what Coeur d'Alene had done. So he and Tony Stewart, another human rights uh, advocate, came to John Day and we filmed that event which was quite powerful and, and in many ways brought the story full circle, which is something that's very helpful when you're, when you're writing to have. So now the ad Idaho advocates are helping other communities. Um, the ending for the documentary, I actually knew or figured out the first day that I shot that footage in 2001. And that also is, doesn't always happen, rarely happens, and is kind of a gift when it does happen because the blank page is hard enough to look at, but if you at least have a destination and you know where you're going, <laughs> it can be helpful. So let's take a look at the concluding segment. In Kootenai County, the emphasis continues to be education. Every fifth grader attends the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. In the American dream, I have a dream. 
My dream is to be an independent and strong woman just like Rosa Parks, by not letting people walk all over me and stand up for what I believe is right, even if someone does not. First Kate, 1986. 30,000 children have now been through the program. Let's celebrate 25 years. The future of promoting equality and freedom, it's an education. People are not born to hate, they learn that. There was no way to tell that this journey would be this long and this fascinating and this consequential. I don't wish it on anybody else, but we did live through it and we learned an immense amount from that. It changed us as people. To be given the honor of leading a purposeful life is, uh, is a precious thing. I've got to be the luckiest man that's ever walked this planet. T.J. Lydon's also trying to lead a purposeful life. After years of hating, he had a conversion. He and his infant son were watching a cartoon show with characters from the Caribbean. His other son, only three, came into the room and turned off the TV. Then my three-year-old scolded me, Daddy, no nigger watching in the house. Now, my first impression of my son, because I was a racist, I was like, Perfect. I can't believe it. Yes. Then Leiden started thinking. I thought about the 16 times I've been arrested in my life. I thought about the time I was stabbed at 18. I didn't want my boys to be me. I didn't want my boys to be filled with that kind of anger, that kind of hate, that kind of fr frustration about life. If I didn't want my boys to grow up and be me, what was wrong with my premise of life? What was wrong with my belief system? It took another 18 months for him to leave the movement and six years of therapy to understand why he had joined. What the racist movement did for me is it gave me power, it gave me control. It gave me something that I think I was lacking as a kid. Look at these lyrics. You kill all the niggers and I'll gas all the Jews. You kill the gypsy and the commie too. I just killed a kike. Don't it feel right? Goodness gracious, third right. Fifteen years after leaving, Leiden now lectures against hate all over the country despite death threats from some of his former friends. When we laugh at a racist joke, we laugh at a bigot economy, we laugh when we see somebody being bullied or beaten, what are we telling the person that's doing it? It's okay. You just became part of the disease of spreading racism and not part of the cure of ending it. He'll never be able to fully get rid of the outward trappings of hate, the tattoos. Some he's removed and others he's modified. Excellent throw, kiddo. But inside, he's driven to draw a new future. I do this because I believe I have the knowledge to pay it back, to help people out. I want a better world for my children. I want a better world for other people's kids out there. I want a world free from hate. It's a message that would ring true with Bill Wasmuth. The two never met. Indeed, Leiden only heard Butler threaten Wasmuth. Come here, Just give me a hug. But today, Leiden admires the human rights leader and Wasmuth would likely have had faith in his redemption. Goodness and justice will prevail. Um, it will. And sometimes it takes a long time. But it will. I always believed that. I always believed it. So you saw the bell ringing in the end. Although we like to think that documentaries only cover exactly what's happened, I did ask Bill Wasmuth to ring that bell because I knew we had footage from the 1980s of that bell ringing, calling people to service uh, to hear Richard Butler. And again, it just it felt right to have 
uh, Bill, who is a former priest, um, get a chance at ringing that bell too after his house had been bombed by the group and, and he had worked so hard. Um, this is a moment that I want to take to thank my creative partner on this program. The producer gets to stand up and you know get all the accolades and everything, but a program like this cannot be made obviously without videographers and an editor. And the primary videographer on this is somebody that Chris has worked very closely with, Jay Krajic. Phenomenal uh, videographer, and he also stitched together everything, you know, made my script come to life with all of the archival footage. And uh, there were several hundred tapes. It was, uh, it, it was uh, a lot of work. And so you just, you cannot do this without the people around you uh, helping you. And, and Jay's fit was phenomenal with that. Um, very briefly, uh, as was mentioned, there were there some honors that, that happened, but what to me is really, really the most uh, emotional part of this is the life that the documentary has had after its airing. Um, because of the American Bar Association Award, for instance, the Idaho State Bar just put on a continuing legal education seminar where we had amazing panelists discussing the issues in the documentary and current issues, people like the U.S. Attorney for Idaho, Wendy Olson. And the program has been shown in schools, which is very gratifying to me. Uh, in Coeur d'Alene, where this happened, where many people still don't want to talk about it happening, it was screened for a whole school, a whole uh, magnet school, a charter school. The whole school watched it at the same time, and I was able to get on the little PA system and and talk with him, and, and one of the things that I asked him to think about is the quote that you heard from Norm Gissel, to be given the honor of living a purposeful life is, is a precious thing. So that was the discussion question for them, to think about what is a purposeful life? What does that mean? Maybe write down what you think uh, you, your life is meant to be now and put it away and take that slip of paper out in five years and take a look at it. So the educational component of this was very important to me. And you can see uh, in this slide, and for the radio audience, a teacher has actually taken that quote and put it on the whiteboard outside the classroom so that the children can see it. Wow. That, to me, is really cool as a producer. It's wonderful to have your program aired, but it's even better to have it being used in an educational setting. Speaking of that, there is a website. If you go to idahoptv.org and you search for The Color of Conscience, you'll come up with a website. You can watch the entire program. There are lesson plans there. There are four lesson plans, uh, including the one that I just mentioned. I developed a lesson plan about what is a purposeful life. Another thing that are on there are the full transcripts of some of the interviews that I did. And finally, I don't think there's any other place that has this in Idaho. We went back and we took all of that footage. You know, We have shows where Richard Butler was interviewed in the 1980s. And we have dialogue programs on all manner of human rights issues. We went and we transferred all of those and digitized them, encoded them, and put them on the web for students, teachers, scholars who might want to look back on Idaho history on various human rights issues. All of that can be found at the, at the website. Um, with that, I would just like to thank you for listening to my presentation and again say how wonderful it is that there is a city club in Idaho Falls and keep on keeping on. Thank you. Is this on? Good.
Great. Thank you, Marcia. That was wonderful. I can tell that everybody in here now wants to see a full show, a few, a full viewing of your documentary again. Uh, you mentioned in the course of your remarks that uh, your documentary has been shown in a number of schools. So we have a couple of questions. Is this widely available to schools and have a number, have many schools around the state aired the program? Um. I don't know how many schools around the state have aired it because that's up to them. They don't necessarily need to contact me because, again, because of the Internet, you can just stream it. Um, I do know that at the Continuing Legal Education Seminar that the Idaho State Bar put on, there were high school students listening in, including, I believe, high school students from Pocatello, and I know at least one other Pocatello class has watched it. Um, interestingly, in Coeur d'Alene, I will say that they felt that they could not show the portions on gay rights or immigration. So they had excised those. Um, and I imagine, you know, that's a choice that, you know, a, a principal makes. I do know that uh, the Holocaust educators group in, in this state has watched it several times. The Human Rights Education Center has screened it for their teachers for their summer conference several times. So really it's up to individual teachers if they want to bring that back to the classroom. Thank you. Here's a biographical question for you. It's, it's been noted, of course, that at the bottom of extremism, uh, such as the, that represented by the Aryan nations, uh, lies a deep sense of intolerance. As you began to make this documentary, uh, how clear was it to you uh, about the intolerance that dominated those who belonged to the Aryan nations? Uh, because you interviewed a number of people who were in that group. And, and, and in the course of your interviews, were you able to discern why those members became so intolerant of different faiths and races? Well, I interviewed TJ, and I, as I said, I did a brief interview with, with Richard Butler. So I would cons not consider myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination in, in this area. Um, there is an Idaho State University professor who I interviewed, who unfortunately didn't make it into the documentary as well, who is much more of an expert in this. I never went into it, I guess I don't, um, to me fear is at the basis of a lot of what we might call intolerance and I think that fear exists on all sides of every issue. I think that there are people that are fearful on liberal, in liberal groups, fearful of things that they don't understand or you know, views that are different than theirs. That's why it's important to have city clubs, you know. Um, so I guess I didn't come into it thinking any particular way. Um, I also think that economics have a lot to do with the origination of some and, and, and the growth of some of these hate groups. When people are cannot find work or are not trained for the transition in our society that has happened from industrial work, mechanical work, to work with computers, there's a lot of fear and anger and resentment of whatever you want to call it, the intelligentsia, the you know, one world government that's forcing everybody to change. You know, these are co that that's a word you hear or a phrase you hear a lot. So I think what it comes down to a lot is fear. And that's why I really wanted to try and find a child who had grown up in this compound to see where they were today. 
I, I will tell you that um, Richard Butler's children, many of them, uh, disavow their father's beliefs. And um, one had a had a a role in helping make good the problem that I mentioned with the with the head of the Coeur d'Alene tribe. So uh, there 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 is a terminus sometimes to these views, and they come with people going out into the wider world, getting an education such as an, at an institution like this, sometimes going into the military and meeting people from other backgrounds, and sometimes just um, like T.J. Leiden, falling in love. That's what did it for him. He fell in love with somebody who didn't share these views. He had children, as, as you heard in the piece. He did not want his children from his second marriage growing up in that kind of environment. Children from the first marriage, by the way, also disavow this, this type of thing. Thank you. Of course, in the program, you deal with the issue of discrimination against gays and lesbians. Given the fact that this documentary was produced over the period of, of a decade or so, have you yourself observed in Idaho any notable or significant progress in advancing the rights of gays and lesbians? Um, well, and again, to some people, it wouldn't be considered progress, so change I have seen. You know, I think one thing that I need to make clear is I'm not what's called an advocacy producer. I don't have a particular cause that I'm espousing that I'm pushing for. I'm trying to show various points of view, and there is an individual in this documentary, It's not he's not in this clip, who doesn't like the idea of putting uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in the human rights statute. So I think we, we always need to be aware that there are lots of points of view. Have I seen changes? Absolutely. Um, in 1999, when we aired a national documentary called It's Elementary that we did not produce, and which just simply dealt with teachers encouraging students to be kind in, to people who are gay and not disparage them, um, there was a backlash against that documentary, as many of you may recall. Um, we have had no backlash against this this documentary, and it includes some very sensitive subjects. So I think, yes, there have been changes, and there are big parades now in most cities in Idaho, I think, um, pride parades, and I also showed a prom uh, in this documentary that is both gay and straight students going to the prom. Um, there's also great frustration that I show in the documentary from people who continually try to get the words put in the statute. And the Human Rights Commission, by the way, in this state has approved that. Uh, the Human Rights Commission believes that those four words should be added to Idaho's human rights statute so that somebody cannot be fired for being gay. Um, and the legislature has said no several times. But as you saw with the piece about Theron, employers are now saying, okay, well, if it's not an Idaho law, it's gonna be common practice in our company. So you are seeing a lot more of that, you know, companies realizing that if they want to attract a diverse work population, they might, they've changed their internal practices to make sure that the discrimination is not occurring. So yes, I think there's been quite a bit of change on that issue in Idaho since I moved here 20-some years ago. Like I said, I don't think I would have seen 
of breaking boundaries of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, there are members from breaking boundaries here in 1989. Do you think that busloads of children would have been coming in to see the AIDS quilt? No, I don't think so. So yes, there has been change. And, and as a follow-up that, to that, as you know, uh, the Sandpoint Ordinance, which is well known to, to many Yeah, and thanks for state. reminding yeah, folks and that. Yeah, and of course that protects people against being fired uh, for reasons of Right, and in Troy, Idaho. So it's being done city by city. And it's being drafted as an ordinance in Pocatello. Yep. The Boise City Council that's is right. including it. Don't know if that's going to be moved by the Idaho Falls City Council. That's not an advertisement, just a question. <laughs> so there has been a, a number of uh, significant right. points of progress, Definitely. right? Uh, Marcia, let me ask you another question that goes to, to your own experience in producing this documentary. Uh, a couple of people in the audience wonder in different ways, uh, are you surprised in this day and age that we find so many willing to denigrate our national leaders including the President of the United States as something other than a United States citizen? Uh, and, and is this uh, founded in, in race or racism? Oh gosh. Again, guys, I'm a reporter. I report on what happens. I don't, I'm not a commentator, thank gosh. Um, the, the simple answer to your question is no, I'm not surprised that we still have um, talk of any nature like that because again we're a huge country it's amazing we get along as well as we do don't you think i mean really it's there's so many diverse populations here so there's always going to be an element of people that are going to denigrate what they don't know what they don't understand what they fear again on both sides of the coin if you look at documentary there are people who denigrated um President Bush, you know, and if you watch The Choice, which was on Frontline a couple nights ago, you'll see um, pictures of Bush portrayed as Hitler and President Obama portrayed as Hitler. So uh, the 24-hour news cycle and the need to fill that news cycle, I think, has meant that we cover a lot more things that might not have gotten coverage before. So, and the internet allows people to post things. You know, when this went up on the internet, I immediately got a message from an Aryan person who said, doesn't matter, we're not dead, we have the internet, we can, we can convene anywhere we want to with the internet. We don't need a compound. So, no, I'm not surprised. Um, as, as far as to your other question about race, I'll let people, other than me, vet, vet that. Um, who are more expert at, than I am in, in what's going actually going on. Uh, now taking into account the fact that you're not an advocate, producer, an advocate reporter, and we appreciate that. Uh, in your observations about uh, politics in Idaho, uh, do you think that there's been a conflict between free speech and freedom of religion if in fact a community wants to lock out a group based on its religious interest? And I take this to be a question that would ask whether the Aryan nations was really a religion or a political group. Right. I feel like I'm in college taking a test. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to write anything down in a blue book because my handwriting isn't good anymore. You're going to collect that exam in 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, the 
it didn't really matter whether the Aryan Nations was a viable, quote, church or not in terms of being able to march in that community. That was their free speech right. That was determined by the case that came out of Skokie, Illinois. They had a right to march. The really interesting question to me was what the community, the various factions in the community decided to do when that march occurred. And I have a section on that in my documentary, and I have a lesson plan on that called Lemons to Lemonade. Some people came and screamed. Some people came and turned their backs. Some people went to an alternative rally in Spokane at Gonzaga University. And as I show, the Kootenai County Human Rights Task Force, Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations, excuse me, um, looked at it as a fundraiser. And for every minute that Richard Butler marched, they collected pledges. And with those pledges, they raised something, I'm going to say, I wish I could remember exactly, $35,000. And that was given to school teachers throughout the year in three different segments, three different chunks of money to promote human rights issues. And each time they gave it out, they had a press conference and they thanked Richard Butler for having helped them raise the money by marching. So the idea was, you know, would he march faster? knowing that money was being raised for every minute? Or did it matter? Um, I don't see a particular conflict in our community. People, you know, the, the Hammerskins ended up on private property, as I understand, um, for their concert. Had they ended up on public property, there probably would have been that same dilemma in, in the Boise area about what should we do. But they have a right to say what they want to say. I mean. You know, with hate crimes, what it is, is you can say whatever you want to a person, however vile that is, but if you threaten them, if you threaten to do something to them, or if you actually do something, that's where the, the statutes come in. So everything else is, as horrible as it may sound, is free speech. Shifting gears here for a moment, everybody has been... Did I answer that okay, Professor? Okay. Would I get an okay grade on that one? Okay, good. Well, I'll also include the documentaries. The documentary uh, that I, I produced two documentaries on mental illness. One was for children to understand the signs and symptoms of mental illness, not only for themselves, but in their parents and their friends, and to destigmatize it a bit. The other was looking at some uh, political issues surrounding the treatment of mental illness in Idaho. Um, like Chris here in the audience, I have the opportunity to work on Outdoor Idaho, and I've really enjoyed all the programs I've worked on, everything from Native Americans involved in wildlife management to um, programs about Camp Rainbow Gold, Camp for Kids with Cancer, a, camp for, or a, a therapeutic wilderness camp for kids that are having troubles. I tend to really gravitate towards pieces about people that are on the margins or what we might call the margins of society, people that are struggling with some sort of issue. And so with Dialogue, we're entering our 19th season. That's a lot of programs to remember. But I really enjoy just sitting with one person and talking with them, like historian Doris Kearns Goodwin really fascinating person to talk to. I just talked with Kenneth Feinberg, who was the special master in charge of the 9-11 Compensation Fund and the BP um, Horizon 
Gulf Horizon disaster, the oil spill. He was in charge of, charge of the executive compensation fund under the TARP. Um, so, you know, dialogue now is moving much more towards what I call thoughtful conversations for thoughtful people, sitting and talking with these, what we might call public intellectuals, about issues, rather than trying to debate something in half an hour and again, ending up shedding more heat than light on a subject. So that being said, you know, I've also done dialogues with refugees where they come on and talk about their experience coming to Boise, Idaho. And those have been very lovely as well. Uh, it's just, it's a great state and it's a great opportunity. Lots of great programs. Now, this is going to take you back to your days in Idaho Falls. Now, we have it on good authority that when you started at KIFI, that the wages for reporters in those days, at least, were not very high. And that you were too poor to afford a television. Is it true, then, that Greg Carr purchased a television so that you could see your own work on television? I did have a television set. It was a black and white television set. Oh, that doesn't count. And he thought that was a little bit odd, I guess. And so, yes, there was a television set on my doorstep one day, and it was a small television set that I still have in my basement. <laughs> and um, Yes, a small color television set. <laughs> now, as you can I would see, say that Greg Carr is known for a lot more important things than that. <laughs> and um, really, we're, we're so fortunate to have somebody of his stature and open heart in Idaho. I know he's in Africa right now. I emailed with him recently. But if when you get to Boise, if you haven't been to the Anne Frank Memorial, the Human Rights Memorial, take a look at it. You know, he funded that as well. And I, it, first of all, it's the only place in the country, I believe, still, that is a memorial to Anne Frank, right here in Idaho. But I think it's also the only place, maybe the United Nations has this, where the whole UN Declaration of Human Rights is chiseled into stone. And the children, students come and they have wonderful docents there who run through a lot of those, those rights with them and give them things to think about. And that's because Greg Carr, that exists because somebody from Idaho Falls provided the money for that memorial. So that's, of course, what I'd like to think about Greg Carr as having done, along with the museum and lots of other things. Amen to that. That sounds like a future program on Greg Carr's generosity. So we're just about... He's very modest, too. I don't think he'd agree to that. <laughs> we're just about out of time, Marcia. We are, as you know, in the midst of a presidential election. Now, one of the candidates for the presidency has indicated that if elected, he will cut funding to public television. And this is a non-political question, so set that aside. I just wanted to provide the backdrop. Now, would you, in an era in which there would be no support for public television, would you have been able to produce this kind of documentary? Yes, because of the generosity of the donors that that always come forward and support public television. You know, several times there's been attempts to completely defund us and, uh, you know, our viewers are amazing. And so I would like to believe that yes, the documentary like this or Outdoor Idaho would continue to have support from the public. But what I think is important to understand is there are things like transmitter towers <laughs> that then take that program and allow it to 
go out to a wider audience that are not necessarily things that the average person, oh yeah, I'm going to write you a check for a tower. So these are areas where, where the infrastructure is not supported by a public entity where I think it would be very, very difficult to, to continue, and I know that that's our concern. You know, uh, sure, I'd like to think that always that there's enough good people to support good programming, but we've got to get it out to the people. And that is, that is the challenge right now. And um, One last serious question, because we're about out of time. As we stand here today, is Big Bird alive and well? <laughs> He's in the basement of Idaho Public Television, and if you would like to take a tour and have your picture taken with him, we would love to have you. Uh, the station is part of you. It's part of Idaho. And we always welcome visitors. Tours of all types are welcome to our station. And yes, Big Bird lives in our basement. Marsha, thanks so much for this wonderful program. Let's give our guests a wonderful, warm, warm welcome.